It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Shiraz Raymond has been an assistant general manager with the Texas Rangers since November 2018, assisting GM John Daniels in all aspects of the baseball operations department. Raymond's career has taken him through Boston, Arizona, Chicago, and Texas, giving him a broad look at the game from all parts of the map. I had a chance to sit down with Raymond at the Rangers Complex in Surprise, Arizona, before camps were closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his jump from the business world to baseball, the impact of Theo Epstein and Kevin Towers on his career, being a part of the Cubs' curse-busting season, and more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rangers Assistant General Manager, Shiraz Raymond. Shiraz, you were born in Montreal, raised in Rockland County, New York. A lot of different options for uh, who your favorite team would have been. Who was it? Yeah, I moved to, uh, to New York from Montreal when I was six. So I grew up uh, as a huge fan of those 1980s New York Mets teams. Uh, Daryl Strawberry, you didn't ask, but he was my favorite player. Uh, much to the dismay of my dad. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, returned to Montreal in 1999, got your degree in finance and accounting from McGill University. Uh, you did play shortstop, switch header for your college team for four years, uh, but it didn't seem like you had a baseball career in mind, uh, certainly not the one that, that's come about. What was your first job out of college? Yeah, I thought I had a baseball career in mind, uh, but the talent evaluators felt differently. So I had to pivot, um, realizing maybe by my sophomore year or something that, you know, I was playing can- Canadian collegiate baseball and uh, um, wasn't that great at it. So it probably wasn't going to be a big leaguer. Um, but no, at, at the time, honestly, like a, a front office career in baseball was the furthest thing from my mind. I knew uh, I was passionate about my love of the game, uh, which is why I wanted to play collegiately. Um but I didn't even think there were careers uh, for for folks like me. I mean, even just all the popularity of the book Moneyball got it wasn't even out yet, right. you know. And so I, I just didn't know that there were careers uh, in front offices unless you played. So uh, I kind of pursued a degree, uh, excuse me, a job more related to my degree, um, and got a, a a job trading commodity derivatives for Enron, a small energy company that a couple people have heard of, based <laughs> out of uh, Houston, Texas. I believe there was a ballpark named after them for a while. Indeed, there was. Uh, so you're working for Enron in London, right? First, I was in Houston. So I entered into their, like a lot of people, like a financial analyst program, like a lot of investment banks had at the time. And so you like did rotations. So my first year rotation was in Houston, um, and I worked in the steel industry. And then my second year rotation was in London, was supposed to be in London. Uh, or it was in London. It was supposed to be a year, um, but it ended up being only six months. You're 23 years old, and mm-hmm. as I've read, you were told you were redundant. It was a great what, story, what, yeah. <laughs> tell me about that. Um, I'm trying to keep it short, but the uh, it, it was probably one of the funniest experiences of my life and the story that people ask me to retell most frequently when they've heard me tell once. But, you know, Enron um, obviously was a huge company, 20,000-plus employees. I was based in London. The Enron House was the name of the building. It was probably like 1,700 employees, I think. Beautiful building right behind Buckingham Palace Gardens near Victoria Station. Um and, you know, Enron was, was sort of winding down, tons of news out there, whether Morgan Stanley was going to buy their trading business or another bank or other uh, Dynagy reliant energy companies were going to buy them out. But no one assumed that a 20,000 you know, person company that was like, you know, uh, most innovative company in America for five or six consecutive years was going to just fold or go bankrupt. Um, so we actually went bankrupt overseas before the U.S. by about three days, if I remember correctly. And on that day, uh, a small man, an Indian man in a pinstripe suit, came in to the offices and had everyone gathered around it. And Enron, there were almost no offices, it was just rows and rows of desks. And your your title was evidenced by how many flat screen monitors you had. <laughs> um, but it would literally be, so I had two, so it was obvious I was an analyst. And uh, But it would be like an analyst, and next to you could be an executive VP who had 30. And so it was a big football field size room. So he came in and he stood up on the desk in the middle of the room and he said, gather around, gather around everybody. And we all got up and he said, 
announced like like he was telling us it was lunchtime. He was like, as of five thirty p.m. this evening, you're all redundant. Please gather your belongings and leave the building expeditiously. And then he got down and he left. <laughs> no explanation. That was it. No nothing. And I had a friend there who uh, went to Texas A&M who was trading coal. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, you ever been fired before? And I was like, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I have. And he was like, is that how it's supposed to go? And I was like, <laughs> I don't think so. And uh, there was, you know, uh, folks from HR at the door uh, who, as you walked out, handed you your last paycheck. And, you know, that was essentially the last you heard from Enron. For a lot of people. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you went on to work as a consultant for Deloitte and Touche, 2002 mm-hmm. to 2004. At what point during that stretch did you start to think, Moneyball had come out at that point? Sure. At what point during that stretch did you start to think, you know, maybe I want to give a shot at a career in baseball? So, you know, <clears throat> there was like a five-year period there where I was working in finance if you put Enron and Deloitte together. And there was always little things that would happen to me that would bring me back to my love of the game. Uh, the first was actually when Enron went bankrupt and I was in London, I got connected through a guy I played in college with um, uh, who was French to uh, uh, Tony Rigetti, uh, Dave's brother. And I didn't know Dave at all at that point. And he was running a club team in Paris. And so he sort of asked if I wanted to like try out or come play and who knows if I already made it. But I thought about going to do that. And I said, no, I'm 23. I need to be responsible. I need to get a job. And so I shipped right back to New York and, and got a job. But that was the first thing that happened. And then started working for Deloitte and was consulting. I was largely in the D.C. area, mid-Atlantic. And I started playing for like a, like a men's league team, Woodbat League, um, which was a ton of fun. And then I started uh, kind of helping out at Langley High School um, through another connection, actually, a guy I went and uh, played with at, at McGill. Um, I would hit some fungos to infielders, throw some BP on occasion, so just keep my, my foot in the game, so to speak. And it always, just for me, it, it, it evidenced for me like how passionate I was about the game because anytime I had free time, I was looking to do something in baseball, like a, honestly, like a lot of people my age, I think. Um, and, and so I think like that even though I was working in finance, it was sort of kept getting reminders that, you know, maybe I should consider doing something in baseball, but grad school was kind of the, the next thing on my list that I wanted to check off. 2004, you attended the GM meetings. You just bought a plane ticket and went down to Florida. Was that just sort of, I'd want to try to find some people to talk to and hope they, they'll talk to me? It was, it was, there was some strategy behind it. I don't know how smart it was, but, um, so that, back to your last question, like I, I, le- I got into grad school and, when you're going through, that was in 04, was when I started at Columbia for my MBA. And you go through a lot of orientation sessions, talking about your career, even the process of applying and writing essays about what you want to do in your career. And I kept falling back to baseball and like, did I have the gumption to give this a shot, even though I had no connections at all in the game? So that first month or two of school was a little bit of a um, chaotic time for me mentally because I was trying to convince myself that I shouldn't do this when my heart wanted me to chase a job in baseball. So my, my roommate at the time in New York in Hell's Kitchen actually worked at MLB in the, um, in, on the business side, and maybe he would have gotten in trouble for this, but he was able to tell me where the GM meetings were, which were down in Key Biscayne uh, that year. And I said to myself, like, I was still sort of sorting through how to go through a job search, but what I determined at that point is I was going to give myself 12 months, an entire year of chasing a job in baseball and only a job in baseball. And... Um, I was going to do everything I could. And if I got to year two of, of my grad program and I had no progress, then I would shift gears and get what I call a, quote, real job. Right. So um, my friend told me about the GM meetings. I decided I didn't want to just be another resume on a pile in HR. I didn't want to um, just start emailing around without knowing who these people were. And so, and I had to find email addresses too. And so I, I kind of made the decision that like if I could get like 10 seconds of FaceTime in front of the real decision makers in the game. Man, at that point, all I knew were the GMs. Um, maybe I could convince someone that I'm worth, you know, 30 seconds more to talk, uh, maybe five minutes or maybe 30. And so I flew down there. I'd done some research, sort of like, you know, who each GM was, what they looked like, what their pet's name was, where they went to college, something that I could use as a conversation starter. And I snuck past security. Um, and I had some points and miles from my consulting job so I, I could afford to do it and snuck past security and kind of hung out in the lobby at the GM meetings. You know, a lot of people go to the winter meetings, which I'd heard about at that point, but that was about a month later and that was during finals. And so um, 
this seemed like a, a smarter idea, both because it might be less attended and also because it worked with my schedule. So I shot down there and, and loitered in the lobby and hung out by the valet stand, the elevator, the bar. One day I played golf and basically played the same hole like eight consecutive times <laughs> and ran it until I could run into someone. Uh, a lot less GMs play golf than you might think because I only yeah. met one guy out there. Um, Agents probably. And, maybe, GMs. maybe. And, uh, and so I was able to get FaceTime with probably 26 of the 30 GMs about, um, uh, some of whom still tease me about my elevator pitch to this day. Brian Cashman was the first guy I met and I kind of <laughs> stumbled my words in a hundred ways. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to, want to try that again? And uh, I said, yeah, I think I do. And so that's still a sort of a joke uh, when I'm able to see him now. But um, I was able to get you know a little bit of legwork. I, I met Jim Beatty, who was with the Orioles at the time, uh, sort of offered to do a study for him, uh, which was a lineup optimizer that I built, which was probably one of the worst programs ever built. But it was, a, it was an entree into talking to him. Met Billy Bean there. Um, and uh, was able to kind of like that led to a follow-up conversation with Dave Forst about a job that they had opening and then uh, ended up meeting Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer late one night um, out in Miami uh, which I later found out was all a celebration for I believe Walt Jockety's birthday okay um, but I didn't know at the time I just knew I was a couple adult beverages in and it was about one in the morning and ran into Theo and Jed and Theo gave me his email address and told me to follow up from there so that obviously must have helped to some extent because your first job was in 2005 as an intern in the Red Sox baseball ops department. Was that sort of the foundation for that? Was that first meeting with Theo? It was the starting point. I, you know, I ended up having to attack it from multiple angles. Um, you know, I'll just say this. Like everyone in this game has some pretty unique stories about how they break in because it's really challenging. And there's people who have such, you know, disparate career paths that get into the game, you know. And so... Uh, I'm like many, and I was just really, really lucky. Um, but I hit the Red Sox from multiple angles at the time. I, I met Theo. He emailed me back. Then I emailed him the next morning. He emailed me back right away and CC Jed Hoyer, who was supposed to follow up with me, and Jed uh, never responded to my email for like four months, which he still teased me about. Um, and then I also met uh, a gentleman through Colum- actually through Columbia was uh, named Leo Hendry, who was the president CEO of the Yes Network, chairman could have been. Um, and he was fairly good friends with Tom Werner through the TV business and with the Yankees. And so offered to, he kind of heard about some of the things I was doing on my own to try and build a network. And I think he took a liking to me. And, and so he was willing to send a letter to Tom. Uh, and then I also found out, found a personal connection to, um, uh, Larry, uh, to Josh Burns uh, through a classmate of mine of all things. And, and then there was a fourth connection through the, Columbia Career Services Office because uh, the woman I spoke to whose husband was Larry Lucchino's roommate at Princeton or something. <laughs> so I kind of hit a bunch of angles um, and that it took from November till I think I got my job offer in May and I think it was the last member of my class at school to get a summer internship that year. So I interned for the Red Sox that summer of 2005. Uh, you mentioned Theo, Jed, Josh Burns. You were around them during that, that first season in Boston. As we'll get to as your career moves on, clearly you made an impact on them. What kind of impact did they have on you that first summer? I think, like, you know, when I think about my career in baseball, like, I've been so fortunate and blessed to work with some incredible people at every stop along the way. And uh, I probably didn't know it at the time in Boston because it was my first experience. But now I look back and I'm amazed by the amount of people I was able to learn from. Um, you mentioned Theo, you mentioned Jed, you mentioned Josh Burns. Who was the assistant GM, but also in that office was Ben Sherrington, Jason McLeod, Amiel Sade, Jared Porter, and I were interns together and would take turns uh, using his car to drive players to and from MRI appointments or pick them up from the airport, uh, get lunch for everybody in the office. So um, I, it was, I felt like Peter Woodfork was there, Brian O'Halloran, um, Zach Scott. I'm probably missing a few, but. Um, You're like rattling off a list of people who have been on this podcast. It's great. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so that just goes to show how successful they've all been. And, and all of them had time for me. And, you know, I did a lot of menial work then. I, like I said, a lot of coffee runs and, and lunch. But, um, you know, did, was able to get some time with all of them, um, A, to learn, and B, more likely to produce some work product for them at a menial level. And then hopefully that led to, you know, slightly more increasing uh, levels of responsibility. Um, but I'm incredibly grateful to how those guys treated me as an intern. So you earned your MBA from Columbia in 2006. Yeah. 
obviously you already had your foot in the door in baseball. This was the, the direction you wanted to go. Did you think that NBA was going to be helpful for you when you when you embarked on a full-time baseball career? Um, you know, when I went to get an MBA, I, I didn't do it exclusively to get into baseball. And I think when I came out of it, I can't say that there was a whole ton um, that helped me in my job immediately because I wasn't treated much differently as an intern, as the undergrad, you know, uh, intern that was sitting next to me. But as I've sort of progressed in my career, some of the skills around sort of management, leading, leading teams, culture, um, leading change, most notably have they've, those lessons have come into play and, and become more useful for me as my career has gone on. Your first full-time job came with the Diamondbacks. Mm -hmm. uh, how, did, how did that come about? So that was a bit of a crazy story as well. Um, again, like everybody else in the game. But uh, so after I interned for the Red Sox that summer, I was actually somewhat torn. Uh, I loved it so much. And I, I started to wonder if my MBA was just a means to an end and I already had the job at the Red Sox. So I met with a uh, bunch of guys at the end of that summer, Josh, Burns, Theo, I think Larry, Lucchino, and asked them their opinion, Jed, um, should I go back to school or should I just keep this, uh, keep rolling here? And all of them were great and really supported me continuing my education. And so I went back to school that fall of 05. Kind of did a little bit of work, uh, which was, you know, not that important in the grand scheme, but some work on the advanced scouting of the of the White Sox series that year um, that I think the White Sox ended up beating us that, that year. <laughs> um, so maybe I did a poor job. But so tried to keep in touch with the Red Sox guys. And then Josh Burns got the GM job with the Diamondbacks that fall. And he kind of called me and said, you know, hey, do you remember when I told you you should go back to school? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I, you know, I got a GM job, you know, with, in Arizona. And I said, yeah, I, I know. And <laughs> he said, uh, so do you want to come out there with me? And I said, wow, that's, I was amazed. And I said, sure, I graduate in like, you know, four months. This was probably like end of November. I graduate, you know, pretty soon I can come out there. He's like, no, that's not how it works. Uh, I need you now or not. And I said, okay, let me kind of work on it. So I went back to Columbia and they were, they were pretty, you know, old school uh, about it and bureaucratic uh, about trying to figure out how I could like do it remotely for the last semester. And um, so got a lot of no's and then finally figured out a way where I could I could load up all my classes that semester on Monday only. So three hour seminars that only met once a week. And um, you bid with points and so you have the most points in your last semester. So I was able to get all Monday classes and I went back to Josh and I said, hey, I'll take this job and I'll start working next week if you'll let me fly to New York just for Mondays, I'll take a red eye Sunday night, I'll go to class all day Monday, and I'll be on the first bird back to Phoenix Tuesday morning. And his, uh, I think his reaction, either him or Peter Woodfork's reaction was, well, who's gonna pay for that? And <laughs> so we worked out a deal, I got some of it paid for, um, and mixed in there, actually Jed called me and offered me a job with the Red Sox at the time, which was like, I talk about how lucky I feel like I've been, like I went from, having zero contacts, zero prospects in the game to having like two job offers sort of a year and some odd year and a half later, uh, couldn't have been luckier. And uh, I ended up picking the Diamondbacks because I, I felt like it was more Greenfield. It was, Josh was starting a brand new office. There was almost no one there. And so I felt like I'd be able to learn from a bunch of different people. I ended up being surrounded by a second group that was really impressive that I could learn from. Uh, and so I, I took that job, went out to Arizona, started work, and then for that whole spring semester, I, I did that. I took a red eye every Sunday night, class all day on Monday, sublet my apartment in New York, crashed on a couch, and then first flight back to Phoenix on Tuesday. So I was a little exhausted in May, but I was able to finish my degree and, and take a job with the D-backs. So the flight from Boston would have been a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so you joined the D-backs as a baseball operations assistant. You get promoted to manager of baseball operations after about a year. Uh, hold that for two years, got promoted to director. One of your jobs at the time was to coordinate the department's internship program. Yes. When you think back to the type of people that were applying for positions a decade ago or 15 years ago almost, uh, and the types that are now applying, what's changed most in the profile of people who are trying to break into baseball? Such a good question because it's changed so significantly. Um, you know, I laugh sometimes. I joked with someone with uh, Darren Oliver about this yesterday. When I got in the game, I think people thought of me as an analyst um, and because I could, I had some financial background and I, I could do a, make a spreadsheet. And I look at our team of analysts now, the group here in Texas, the group we had in Chicago, Arizona. These guys can run circles around. <laughs> so um, 
First, I would say there's so many more entry points now in the game than there were. At that point, it felt like there was really one job, the baseball ops intern, uh, which now we call apprentices. And there was almost like one job per team, maybe two per team. So you were fighting if you're trying to get the game for 30 jobs with, you know, thousands of other people. Now we have roles in uh, player development, uh, jobs in the minor, at each minor league affiliate where you're sort of like a, you might run tech or edutronic camera or Rapsodo or a Trackman um, and gain some on-field experience. There's still front office internships that we have, but there's probably more than there used to be, maybe two or three or four per team, depending on big market, small. And then there's this, obviously, the, the analytical route, um, and folks are coming in with like incredibly talented backgrounds and academic experience. And you, know, you can step into sort of a junior analyst role uh, there. So it's like, the answer is it's, there's so many more diverse paths and there's so many more diverse candidates that are applying nowadays. I tell you know candidates now that I still speak with that are trying to break in like there's there you just kind of got to pick one and roll with it um, but you've got a lot of options to get your foot foot in the door. I've read you refer to Kevin Towers as a mentor, uh, like so many other people. Sure. <clears throat> excuse me, who have worked in baseball. What what did you learn most from KT? Gosh, KT was an incredible man that I think you know hundreds of people in the game could talk to and probably knew better than I did. I only worked uh, for him for that one year in Arizona in 2011. Um, I think what strikes me the most, what struck me the most about him was was just his ability to relate to lots of different types of people and get on their level and make them at ease um, immediately, uh, the, you know, in one minute of conversation. And I think that's why scouts love KT and, you know, the media like KT and players love KT, coaches, other front office people. He just put you at ease. Um, he was such a good listener. Um and, and he was truly like an incredibly fun guy and funny person to be around, as I think you know and anyone who talked to him. Uh, and, and I think like that lesson, I haven't always been able to apply that as well as he did. Um, but when I've looked at other good leaders I've been around, whether it's you know JD or Theo or Jed or Josh or or KT, um, I I didn't know it then, but I've seemed to learn more now like how important that is. Um, to be a successful leader uh, is having those traits that Kevin had. And uh, it's what made him great. It's what made him one of the best, you know, made him a GM for almost 20 years. I heard a story about you and A.J. Hinch, who was Arizona's farm director at the time, uh, that you once worked at a deal where you would teach him how to use Microsoft Excel and he would teach you how to evaluate catchers. Uh, is part of being a good front office executive knowing what you don't know and trying to learn it? Totally. And I feel that way today. Um, it's why we try and surround ourselves with people that are better than you. And one of my biggest hiring philosophies is to try and hire someone you think will ultimately take your job. Um, but that is a true story about AJ. AJ had walked off the farm, off the, uh, the Phillies 40 man at the end of uh, 04 um, to the farm director's job with the Diamondbacks in 05. AJ is super bright, Stanford educated, um, a friend to this day. Um, and he, uh, you know, didn't know much about how to use Excel or computers because uh, he just didn't, hadn't had to, you know, uh, playing in the big leagues. And uh, I knew a lot about that from my jobs in finance. And I uh, still to this day, I don't know how to evaluate catching or it's one of my weaker, <laughs> weaker skills. But uh, I, that was the trade we made. And, and I think uh, I think I was more successful tutor than he was because I think he's way better on the computer now than, than I am at being a catching evaluator. <laughs> in, a, in an interview in March of 2009, you said of second-year Diamondbacks pitcher Max Scherzer, quote, he's a guy we're hoping for big things from. <laughs> uh, nine months later, he was traded to Detroit and obviously has went on to have a you know, potential Hall of Fame career. What's it like as a member of front office when you watch a player that your club has traded blossom into that kind of superstar? It's pretty brutal, to be honest. <laughs> you know, um, what I said was true. And, you know, I wasn't the highest ranking member of the front office by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the rest of them, Jerry DePoto, AJ, Peter Woodford, Josh, we all believe very highly in, in Max. Um, and watching that happen is like, you know, you're forced to watch. Anytime you watch that happen, I think you're forced to go back and think about the things you did wrong or, or, or things you um, should have thought about that didn't. And I think... With Max, like one obvious thing that comes to mind is just his like incredible competitiveness and intensity. You know, he was always a voracious learner. I remember his first year or two. You know, he was always asking questions, read something on fan graphs, would kind of grab either me or other folks in our analytical group and wanted to know what this meant or what that meant. Um, you know, coming out of Missouri, I think like 
Max's best pitch was was always his fastball, and he kind of had that unique um, ride to it that we can now define with numbers and spin rates. Um, but you know, his, his changeup was probably his best secondary pitch, and his slider was probably a, a distant third in that it was pretty inconsistent. And I think that was the biggest knock on him, and it's why um, you know sometimes early in his career, some of his outings and at bats would run a little long. It was lacking that kind of finished pitch. If it wasn't the heater, um, guys would foul it off. And watching him just uh, blossom into the pitcher he's been, like now that slider is like a wipeout weapon, and you know he's got three plus pitches and more um, that he can utilize. And I think we just sort of undersold his ability to kind of change and morph based on his own um, passion and work ethic. Um, and I think, you know, that's something I, I've tried to learn from moving forward. I've talked to Theo and Jed about this on this podcast. Sometimes you have to make a tough decision for the short term that you know long term is going to hurt. Sure. The Glaber Torres, the Roldis Chapman deal being the perfect example of that where Theo said, I knew that I was going to be watching Glaber go on to this career and I'd be kicking myself. But at the same time, we thought we had this window with the Cubs and we thought Chapman was the guy who would, you know, finish it off. And obviously it worked. Right. How tough is that to balance? And I know you're not in the number one chair making the decisions, but you're part of the group making these decisions. Sure. How tough is it to balance the short-term gain versus the long-term look? I think it's really hard at times. I think, um, you know, I remember being in that room very vividly and how difficult that conversation was. I mean, there are times certainly where you trade a prospect where you're not sure of and they end up being a star. Um, I can honestly say, and that's not you know to say we knew everything in Chicago, but like at that point, the whole room was pretty convicted that Glaber was going to be a really good big league player. Uh, from our Latin American guys who, who signed him originally to everyone in the front office at that point, because he'd done enough in his minor league career to prove that. And I think um, it was, as you said, Theo probably articulated better than me, like a unique moment in time for that organization, 108 years. We had a really good team in 16 and our one weakness was probably that end of the bullpen, despite that Rondon and Strope had thrown really well, lacking that big-name guy. Um, and, you know, like you said, I mean, I think it worked out. You know, if we somehow don't win that crazy Game 7, I don't know that everyone would feel the same. But I think uh, I think Theo actually is the person who said this at some point uh, in the room, like, if not now, when would we make this trade? And I think that resonated. And I, the second part to my answer will be is just that, that thought process has, has come up a lot to me since. Um, we're kind of in an era now where people hoard prospects, you know, like they're gold. Um, there's not a lot of, there seems to be way more sellers than buyers at times. I think like at the end of the day, um, those trades are really hard to make. And like the context of your ball club and like where you are in your winning cycle, like matters a lot to make those decisions. But I think, you know, the lesson a little bit um, that I've tried to take since is, is more um, just that, you know, it may be um, there are there are opportunities out there for the clubs, especially right now in the game, that are maybe willing to do a little bit more buying than selling. And I think we've seen that in the marketplace a little bit. And I think it's tough, and no one wants to get burned. And everyone likes to see their own prospects prosper with them and with the club. It's a good feeling for the fans, for the organization. Um, but you know, you, you got to balance that, and it's, it's not easy. You spent six seasons in total with Arizona. You were the director of player personnel your final year there. When Theo came calling about bringing you to the Cubs, what was the biggest factor that, that led to you going to Chicago? I mean, um, to be honest, and I loved my time in Arizona. Like I said, the, the guys you listed was able to there learn from Josh Burns, Peter Woodfork, Jerry DePoto, Bob Gebhardt, Mike Rizzo, um, you know, probably missing one, A.J. Hinch. Um, but I, I felt like, you know, at that point, Josh had been let go. AJ had been let go. Peter had left to go to the commissioner's office. There was a lot of people that had left, and KT took over. Um, the organization was kind of shifting gears a little bit. And, you know, when I think it was Jed that called first, uh, not Theo. Uh, I can't remember exactly right now. But I got to tell you, like, the, the I couldn't have been more excited. I mean, the, the opportunity at that point to, like, go to that franchise and help, you know, break that curse, so to speak with a group as talented as one being led by Theo and Jed, which is kind of all I knew at the time, uh, cool city like Chicago, great franchise, great brand. It was like, it was like music to my ears. I mean, I, I couldn't have been luckier than to be, you know, asked or chosen to, to join that team. So you rejoined Theo and Jed in Chicago, your assistant to the general manager. You had seen Theo and Jed, you know, from a distance, obviously, before you even interned there, help break that curse in Boston, 86 sure. years. Sure. 
when you start working for the Cubs, do you immediately start thinking and dreaming about what it's going to be like to end the 100-plus year drought in Chicago and what sort of insanity that would entail? From before I started, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, everyone that was in that front office, J-Mac included, guys like Kyle Evans, um, we all took that job with the singular purpose of winning a World Series. And I think we wanted to win multiple World Series. And I think they're still teed up to be a pretty good team again this year. You know, they won't want one ring, but I think they're going to do pretty well for themselves. But yeah, that was the goal from minute one. Um, and it was the thought. And we would we would openly joke about, you know, how or think about or dream about, maybe is the better word, how crazy the city of Chicago would be, you know, if and, if and when we were able to be successful. Um, I don't think we talked publicly about it much, but um, we thought about it. And it drove us and it was it was like the mission that us like there were players that signed with us I think for the same reason that they wanted to be part of the team John Lester uh, wanted to be part of the team that broke that curse and it was like a unique unifying like um, mission that I think everyone from the front office to the scouts to the coaches to the players like all felt and it was it was palpable and I think it drove us prior to the 2013 season you're promoted to assistant general manager You've said in the past you don't get hung up on titles at all, but was that meaningful to you to, to get that title? Yeah, I mean, I, just the more I've worked in the game, I realize it's way more about, like, A, what you learn, B, who you're surrounded with, and, and C, what kind of responsibilities you get than your title. Uh, that's why I think I've said that in the past, and I still believe that. Um, but, yeah, it was rewarding to get take the two the out of my title um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, got a chance to work alongside Randy Bush, who um, I just saw the other day, who's, you know, probably one of my top five favorite people in baseball. He's one of the nicest men around and um, incredibly, you know, incredibly great playing career, two World Series rings with the Twins. And um, he was couldn't have been more welcoming to me at the time in addition to, to Jed and Theo. So uh, it meant something, but what it meant more was was that I was, you know, I was able to put my, I was put in a position where I could really sort of lead and effectuate the change that I think the organization needed. Um, and... I think that's what was rewarding for me, um, you know, the, the, obviously the following few years and, and some of the successes we had. Your final title with the Cubs was assistant GM of strategic initiatives. What does that mean? <laughs> what, you know, how, how did that, I guess, how did you define what that meant? It, it was a cool title that I think me, Jen, Theo came up with one day. Um, so it came about as a result of a couple things. Like one, as I said earlier, like I think if you're doing a good job of hiring, you're hiring people that you think uh, can and want to do your job one day. And we had hired two on the kind of the major league operations train underneath me uh, that I think are both stars, and the industry now does too. Uh, one being Scott Harris, now the GM of the Giants, who's done fantastic for himself, and the other being Jeff Greenberg, um, who's still with the Cubs and sort of taken over for some of the things that uh, that Scott and I used to do. And those guys were growing so fast and are so talented that we wanted to make room for them to, to be able to continue to rise and to gain more responsibility. So that was a, one half of the equation. And then the other half was it kind of came about of like conversations that took place over like a two, three-year period um, that were more about we would always joke about what would happen if we could hire a McKinsey consultant to come in and like look at our operation and, you know, tell us like Captain Obvious stuff that we're missing or doing wrong. And it was through that process that, you know, I think it was Theo's idea. It was like, why don't, why don't you do that? Why don't you spend a year and you can look anywhere in the organization. I want you to tell me where we're either missing on things or things we can do better and where are the areas that we can find competitive advantages. Um, and we kind of talked a lot about different ideas and things, you know, departments, sub-departments in baseball to focus on. And I think, like, player development became the area that was most obviously something that was changing so rapidly in the game. And I think we've seen that in the last four or five years. And I think we're going to continue to see that in the next 10. Um, and so I spent a ton of time with Jaron Madison, Jason McLeod, uh, Bobby Basham, Alex Suarez. And they, those guys were awesome to me at just trying to look under the hood and figure out, like, are there better ways to build a mousetrap on how things are done in player development? And I don't know that we had it all figured out, and I certainly didn't. But it was a super fun role uh, to get, A, to get out of the office most of the summer and spend it at our affiliates in, out here in, in Mesa. Uh, and just seeing peel back the covers a little bit in PD and, and, and spend some time talking to guys about like what their frustrations were, how they, what they think, what holds them back in their job. Um, and trying and, you know, ended by giving them a couple of Theo and Jed, a couple of takeaways and thoughts that I had. And, um, and then the Rangers came calling and so jumped over here. <laughs> a lot of people generalize the word analytics. Yeah. And it, it gets thrown around a lot without sort of a specific definition. 
but it's really evolved a lot. Just the meaning of the word in baseball over the past decade. What does that word mean to you when you hear it? Um, I think you asked the question perfectly. I think it does mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, and it really has evolved. You know, I think a good example of that is, you know, at first it just meant stats, right? Someone heard the word analytics and they thought it meant sabermetrics or statistics. And now, you know, teams are using, you know, analytics to analyze, uh, you know, data that has way more to do than just statistics. You can use analytics to break down scouting reports to learn uh, and teach like which of your scouts are better at assessing which tools, which of your scouts are better or worse at assessing certain player profiles. And can you use that information, A, to like, you know, craft development plans for each of them as an, on an employee basis, and also to kind of weight your models and, um, you know, your pref lists about how you ultimately end up ranking players. So now that's analytics that has nothing to do with statistics, right? We do analytics on sports science data and wearable device data. Uh, you know, now, I mean, one of the you know, crazier things going on is these like markerless motion capture systems um, that are able to build sort of biokinetic anatomical models of pitchers on top of video, um, you know, while the pitcher's in game where we can learn potentially about uh, injury prevention, red flags and performance improvements. Uh, understanding like biokinetics and, and that's where I go back to the point I made earlier these guys right now that are doing this stuff you know I, I couldn't I, I don't even think I could sharpen their pencil for them <laughs> and uh, they're really really smart and talented and, and so it's just a, another example of the way analytics is, is kind of forged into every part of our of our business at this point and it, it's about way more than just that statistics it's about a, a evidence-based thought process that you use to help make decisions. You once said all information is good information until we prove it to be otherwise. Can there ever be too much information? 100%. I didn't know I said that. Um, yeah. uh, 100% true. The internet's a great thing. <laughs> um, that's 100% true. Um, I think you see that a lot with players. And I think uh, I was listening to someone on MLB Network this morning talk about this a little bit. But, um, you know, there, there are, I think 10 years ago, we worried about this a little bit more, but it still exists today. There are certain players that want a ton of information and certain players that don't want much at all. And I think our job, ultimately, all of us in baseball, in the front office, certainly, are, and coaches, I guess, are to cater to those players and try to make them the most successful versions of themselves. So I think you have to tailor your approach on how much info you give to somebody in terms of what they want, what they can digest, and can you break it down into like simple three bullet points rather than overwhelming them with data. I think the one difference, uh, and this is what they were talking about this morning on the radio, was that you see now in the game is that players have a larger appetite, I find, for information than, than they did 10 years ago. I mean, guys we draft are entering pro ball knowing exactly what their launch angle and exit velocities are, what their spin rates and spin axes are. And if we're not able to meet them there and provide them that information that they're used to getting on the amateur showcase circuit, you know, shame on us. Um, so, yes, at the end of the day, it's all about distilling large amounts of information to simple decision-making points. But... I think you've got a, a group of both players and now staff that are just so much more, um, have such a larger appetite for that, um, that it almost, they drive the conversation now as much as from the front office. Near the end of the 2016 season, your name was floated out there, I guess in media reports, as a possibility for the Twins' vacant GM job. Was it flattering to hear your name involved in the in the mix? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, obviously, you you know, hear see your name in the paper, I guess it's not a terrible thing, but... Um, you know, I, that's why I said about titles. I mean, it, it's nice to uh, certainly it's a goal of mine to one day lead a baseball operations group, um, and I would love to to be in that position one day when an owner is is dumb enough to make that decision. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in the meantime, I think what I've learned um, after fifteen ish years is that like if I can be in a place where I'm surrounded by really good people, where I'm constantly being challenged and learned, and I can impact and have an impact on the baseball operation. That matters more to me than anything. And so I'd be able to be in, in roles that I would describe that way for most of my career. So I'm really grateful for that. And I think just continuing to have those type of roles is what matters more to me. Um, you know, always flattering to get mentioned, um, but it's, it's probably a little bit less of like a be-all, end-all focus than it maybe was when I broke into the game in you know, 2004. When you think back to that October 2016, pretty wild ride with the Cubs, uh, you guys get to the World Series. I was in Chicago. It was pretty insane. You fall behind 3-1 in the series. You come back. You force game seven. 
what was Game 7 like for you just watching that game and, and that night? I mean, if you talk to anyone that's worked with me, that I think they would say, like, I probably, um, when I'm watching a game, I, I probably don't ride the emotional highs and lows as much as some others. Um, but I will tell you that that whole world, probably the whole postseason, but that whole World Series and definitely Game 7, I rode them as much as anyone. I'm at, I, was, I felt like I was ready to vomit most of the day. <laughs> um, you know, the, the emotional highs and lows of that game were, were, were obviously been written about. Uh, and will be talked about for for years. Um, it was it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Like the you talk, you asked about the the did we believe that that's what we were there to do when we got to Chicago? And the answer is yes. So now that it was like we're on the precipice of achieving it, and I was like a small part of it. You know, I don't know if that is what drove the anxiety or just the the stress and the pressure uh, of of trying to win. Um, it was it was an incredible day. I can't imagine what our players and what Joe were feeling, or Theo and Jed, you know, sort of leading the charge. But it was hard enough just for me to watch the game. What did you do during the rain delay? Uh, I was sitting with Randy Bush, Scott Harris, and I think uh, our scouting director Matt Dory at the time, Jaron. I think a couple of us walked up to the um, to the uh, concourse area and tried to get away from things. Um, and just uh, try and take your mind off what was happening. But, you know, we're still so shell-shocked from that Rajai Davis homer um, off Aroldis that we were like, I can't believe that we might get this close and not win. Um, and it just goes to show how hard this game is, how humbling it can be, um, and why a trade for Aroldis Chapman, you know, might not work, right? Um, even though he obviously performed great, even if we lost that series. And I think, I think it just struck me that, like, you know, these, these margins are so slim these days and so something that a lot of more talented executives than I I hear often say is you know the best way to win a World Series is not to go all in on one team it's to build a team that can go to the World Series or the playoffs four or five years in a row and then one of those years you know things will break right for you and you see it now with the Cubs with the Dodgers with the Astros the last few years you know obviously a different topic but the Yankees you know the best way you win World Series is not by banking just on one year, but building a team that can go to the playoffs multiple years in a row. You mentioned before dreaming about what Chicago would be like if they ever won the World Series there. What was it like afterwards? I, it's it's so hard to put it into words. Um, you know, the the it was, and I think everyone that worked there would say this, especially Randy Bush, who worked there longer than any of us, it was way more in every way, just more than any of us expected. I mean, um, the parade was like an eye-opening experience. I mean, they said it was like, you know, one of the top 10 most attended events in humankind. Um, just seeing how many people and his lives were impacted by the joy of the Cubs winning the World Series. It was so um, humbling and rewarding. Uh, and, you know, I was probably drunk for about four or five days uh, <laughs> straight, I think. But we had to fall right into the GM meeting, so that, that made it a little tougher. But it was... It was like nothing I've ever experienced, uh, and I'm just incredibly grateful that I was part, be able to be a small part of it. What was most attractive to you when Texas expressed interest in bringing you over to the Rangers after 2018? Well, a couple things. Uh, one, J.D. was someone back in that job hunt day in 2005. He was one of the first people to give me the time of day and uh, had like a little informational interview with him and, and Thad Levine, I think, and, and then grew a friendship with Thad. And, um, we had kind of kept in touch throughout the years in the game when Thad left uh, to go to Minnesota, I think after the 16 season, um, had a couple conversations about how you know his office was going to shake out, and I think they, were, they wanted at that time to promote some folks internally, uh, which they did, and now they're my coworkers, and they're fantastic. And so we just kind of kept in touch. Um, and so I had great respect for J.D. and all that he'd done um, in the game. So that was one part of it. And then I think as they assessed sort of their – uh, post that Levine plan and how it worked for them in the Rangers uh, in 17 and 18, they were they were kind of going through a period of self-evaluation to kind of change things up a little bit more. Um, and so it created a role um, that was like perfect fit for my skill set. It was an assistant GM role on the major league operations side of things, which is what I'd basically spent my career doing. Um, and so it was kind of checking two boxes. Like now I, I know and trust and respect JD. I knew Josh Boyd a little bit. Um, didn't know Mike Daly yet, come to know him now. So good people. And then check this sort of like a job description where I could A, make an impact and B, continue to learn and grow. Uh, and then C, you know, we had some family ties. My wife's actually from Texas. And uh, so it was a bit of a homecoming for her. And it's pretty rare in this game to get an opportunity to deliver at home and on the and at work. And so uh, 
I jumped at it. It was an easy decision. When you were hired, JD said it's important to bring in different mindsets and perspectives from outside the organization. As you've moved from Arizona to Chicago to Texas, do you feel like you've been able to gain different perspectives of the way teams handle their business and try to, you know, nitpick and incorporate certain things from each stop into your own philosophies? Yeah, I don't know that I've been perfect at it, but that's exactly what I've tried to do. Um, that's why I kind of keep referring to different people I've worked for. I mean, I've, I've felt really lucky to touch that many talented people in the game. And so just being able to be exposed to all of those now leaders, GMs, scouting directors, phone directors, um, and try and pull a tidbit about how they handle a certain product, problem, I think just helps you build like your tool belt, you know, um, and how you're going to approach problems. Uh, I also think like, some of the things and and uh, change that we led and made in Arizona was very directly correlated to some of the change we made in Chicago, um, in in my areas of responsibility, which has led to some of the similar things that we're doing here in Texas. And so there definitely have been um, some parallels. And I think um, what was really cool, and I probably learned this more after I took the job with Texas than before, was how real the kind of organizational change. Um, that JD had mentioned um, how well real everybody was about doing that and so I find everyone here with the Rangers is like so intellectually curious which is which is a really great trait to have so interested in peeling back the onion and thinking of different ways to build the mousetrap use that expression twice I think Um, it's been really fun kind of working with them and uh, throwing out some new ideas and new ways to approach a problem and then hearing their their thoughts about how they've thought about um, you know sort of approaching that same problem and, and being collaborative about finding the right solution where it's not about whose idea it's about the best idea you did an interview at MLB Network right after you joined the Rangers and you said right now you were drinking from a fire hose I've heard a lot of people use that expression about joining a new team a new job what's the toughest part of the transition moving to a new club it's a great question. I, I think probably the single biggest thing that I've learned through both success and failure at times um, is um, how important relationships are in this game and how the best idea uh, doesn't always work if you can't sell it or implement it. And so I think that the toughest thing about working in, and it's probably true about any job, but uh, about baseball, we're so close. We spend so many hours and minutes together. Those relationships are so key to, to implementing change and to getting things done. And I think like drinking from a fire hose about a year ago, I still am now a little bit, um, is as much about the work product as much as it is about, you've basically got no background, no relationship with a ton of people that you're trying to work with on a day-to-day basis. And so trying to invest enough time in each and every person to get to that level of comfort and trust where you can actually like, you know, uh, work together and be productive together is, is it's, it's a lot of work. And, um, you know, I think the guys here have been really great about being welcoming to me and I've, I've tried to meet them halfway. And I think, um, but that's what I was referring to then. And, and that's, I think one of the biggest challenges in baseball is just like making sure you maintain those relationships with people you work with when you do challenge each other, you know, on a day-to-day basis sometimes on how to do things better. And, and um, you know, I've been really grateful to how all the guys here with the Rangers have welcomed me. Front office bios and the media guide are one of my favorite things to look at because <laughs> it's just this exhaustive list of things. According to your bio, you're involved in all aspects of baseball ops, including trades and acquisitions, overseeing roster management and administration, negotiating and structuring player contracts, leading the club's salary arbitration efforts, also see, overseeing the baseball operations budgetary process. Whew. <laughs> Self-evaluation time. Is there one area that you consider your strength? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I, I think, to be fair, I, th- I think I'm a pretty decent negotiator at times. So um, always been handed um, responsibilities. This is going back to Arizona, um, where I was, you know, put in situations to interact with agents and negotiate. First, it was just the zero to three contracts, which are not much of a negotiation, but, <laughs> but you learn and develop relationships with agents. And then salary arbitration, I've been involved in that for really almost my whole, you know, 15 years. Um, and now with JD, what's been so awesome about working with him is how much he's willing to, you know, delegate, um, you know, negotiations with, with other clubs that I have relationships with or with agents on some of our major acquisitions. Um, I think uh, I've been able to put those skills kind of negotiating wise to, to, to pretty good use at, at times and um, that's been a lot of fun. If there's one area of your job 
that you'd want to improve upon, what would that be? Um, I would say, you know, we were just talking about relationships. I think like that's always um, a focus of mine. I think, you know, occasionally I can be described as hard charging, uh, certainly by my wife uh, or my friends or probably most people I work with. And I think just always trying to strike that balance between, you know, trying to really be driven and get things done. Uh, and at the same time, value people uh, and what they each bring to the table individually and make sure that you're not, you know, a bull in the china shop when you're trying to um, make things happen. The Rangers haven't been around for 108 years, but they've never won the World Series. Uh, you saw what it meant to Chicago for people who in all of their lifetimes had never seen the Cubs <laughs> win. What do you think it would mean to the DFW area for the Rangers to win their first World Series? I, mean, I probably should have mentioned that earlier. I, that was another big draw of coming to the Rangers was to get the opportunity to go to another place that had never won a World Series and be part of what then feels like like an historic chase uh, rather than just like trying to win a championship. I don't mean to sell that short, um, but I think it adds another level. Um, so yeah, I, that's a motivating factor for me. You know, I, I'm not from Texas. My wife is, uh, but I spent some time there both at Enron and then and now since. Um, I just uh, you know. Yes, I want to win a World Series uh, just to be champions because I think it would mean a lot to the people here that I work with and care about. Um, but I think for this for the city of Dallas and the state of Texas, you know, uh, but notably for the DFW area, I think like being being a small part of the team that brings the first championship to the Rangers would be uh, it was something I would be like again incredibly lucky to say that I, that I did, and it's something that I think. Uh, we all believe in and think that it's going to happen. And, and Chris Woodward articulates that pretty well on a daily basis and want to be champions, and I think we're focused on doing that. Shiraz, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Many thanks to Shiraz Raymond for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Padres Assistant General Manager Josh Stein. We'll discuss working for your hometown team, the arbitration process, the Padres deal for Fernando Tatis Jr., and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Stay safe, everybody. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.